With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Women of the Revolution. My name is Susan Bonner, and I am here with Deb. Say hello. Hello. And for those of us who are just joining those of you who are just joining us now, this is a historical endeavor. We talk about the women of the, that helped shape the revolution, helped in this revolution, uh, helped their husbands in the revolution. Uh, most of the material we cover and the women that we found, you would never have ever heard about. Um, we go deeply into what was around the revolution, wherever the women were born or they landed or their husbands were, we highlight what was going on in that area of the uh, colonies during the revolution and, and before, because we get into a history of uh, before as well, which I'm going to start with uh, Delaware. We're going to Delaware. We have been in the middle theater, which is really strange, because usually we jump around. But the past couple of shows, we've been in the middle theater. Did you realize that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, once a month, we take wives of the signers of the Declaration of Independence and highlight them and their husbands because most people do not know the actual signers of the, the Declaration except for the most famous one. Um, John Hancock comes to mind, Benjamin Franklin. But there were many, many more signers of the Revolution, and they did have wives, believe it or not, except for one signer and representative from Delaware where, who did not have a wife, which is unusual. But our ladies tonight are going to be Mary Borden McKean, Sarah Armitage McKean, and Gertrude Reed. And they, the first two ladies, because there's, there's two of them, because one of the signers' wives died, the first wife he had, which is also something that happened quite commonly during colonial times. And he remarried Sarah. He first married Mary, then he remarried Sarah. And then Gertrude Reed is also a wife of one of the other signers, and they're all from Delaware. So how we decided to do this is by colony. And we've already done Connecticut, and we've done New York. I don't know why I jumped all over the place. Deb, I should have just went in order. So now I'm just going in order. Um, So now we're doing Delaware. And... um, do you have anything else you want to – oh, one particular thing. Where I am in the mountains of Montana, we're getting an Indian summer, so all the windows are open, and you will be delighted to hear our crazy rooster. Uh, this is a new addition because our uh, rooster caught born passed away in June, and this is a uh, – what do they call Rescue chickens, like the rescue dogs? Yeah. <laughs> He's a rescue rooster. And And as we know, anything rescued comes with issues. Yes, it does. And believe it or not, he came to us because we had gotten from our neighbor who has five roosters, which 
you're not supposed to have more than one rooster unless you have two separate uh, flocks of hens and one rooster for each. You don't have five roosters for one group of hens. No. But subsequently, he got beaten up, and he came to us with no feathers, no neck feathers, no tail feathers. He was a mess, and he's an ugly thing to begin with. So now, because of my husband, because my husband wanted this rooster, I did not, his feathers are growing back in, Deb. I'm not kidding you. Oh, good. Yep, his neck feathers are back. He's got his tail feathers. He's fatter. Um, yeah, so, yay. <laughs> I'm still screaming with my water pistol. He has his ladies all to himself. <laughs> yeah, one of them still can't stand him and goes after him, so. But okay. that was his fault. There's always one. Yeah. Yeah, he he created it though. When he first got here, he attacked her, and uh, she's not having any of it. <laughs> he's done. Okay, so since we are going to Delaware, I am going to highlight part of the history of Delaware, and this is from what site is this? The U.S. fifty, the state of Delaware. It's about fifty. It's about the fifty states. This site. So Delaware's history is a long and proud one. And the reason that we do highlight the history of the, the different areas where we are is because it helped shape the people during the revolution because where they came from and who they were affiliated and how the colony was first born has a lot to do with how they responded to leaving the, the British crown. So um, early explanations of the coastline were made by the Spaniards and Portuguese in the 16th century by Henry Hudson in 1609 under the auspices of the Dutch, by Samuel Argyll in 1610, by Cornelius May in 1613, and by Cornelius Hendrickson in 1614. During a storm, Argyll was blown off course and sailed into a strange bay, which he named in honor of his governor. It is doubtful that Lord de Lewar ever saw or explored the Bay River and the state which today bears his name. It's de Lewar. We call it Delaware. In 1631, 11 years after the landing of the English pilgrims at Plymouth, Massachusetts, the first white settlement was, was made on Delaware soil. And this is really interesting because uh, of the timeline as far as I'm concerned. A group of Dutchmen formed a trading company headed by Captain David Peterson de Vries. I think it is Vries. So the purpose of enriching themselves from the new world. The expedition of about 30 individuals sailed from the town of Horn under the leadership of Captain Peter Hayes in the ship, the Whale. The settlement called, I'm not going to try to do this, the Wandel, meaning Valley of Swans, okay, Swanendale, that makes more sense, was located near the present town of Luz on the west bank of the Luz Creek, today the Luz and Rehobos Canal. Arriving in the New World in 1632 to visit the colony, Captain DeVries found the settlers had been killed and their buildings burned by the Indians. I'm glad they called them that. No further attempts to col- at colonization were made on Delaware soil until 1638 when the Swedes established their colony in present Wilmington, which was not only the first permanent settlement in Delaware, but the whole Delaware River Valley in North America. The first expedition consisted of two ships, under the leadership of Peter Muent, landed about March 29th. 
The location of the first Swedish settlement was at the rocks on the Christian Christina River near the foot of 7th Street. Um, let's see. A fort was built called Fort Christina after the young queen of Sweden, and the river likewise named for her. Now, this is really interesting to me, Deb, because we've never really heard of Sweden. We've had, what, we've had Germans come over. We've, of course, we've had um, Englishmen, uh, Frenchmen. Um, we've had the uh, Irish come over but and the Dutch, but we've never really heard about the Swedish, have we? No, no. Yeah, there was um, small uh, communities of them. They didn't come like the Dutch or the British or the French. Right, and and that's why... In the um, 19th century, I think, is when they really, well, you know, they came out west. Right, and again, we were always diverse, ladies and gentlemen. We were always always diverse, not the way that they're talking about now. Um, okay, the most important Swedish governor was Colonel Johan Prince, who ruled the colony under Swedish law for 10 years. He was succeeded by John Johan Rising, who upon his arrival in 1654 seized the Dutch post, Fort Kashmir, which the governor of the colony of New Netherlands had built in 1651 on the site of the present town of Newcastle. Rising governed the Swedish colony from his headquarters at Fort Christina until the autumn of 1655 when Peter Stuyvesant came from New Amsterdam with a Dutch fleet, subjugated the Swedish forts, and established the authority of the colony of New Netherlands through the area formerly controlled by the colony of New Sweden. This marked the end of Swedish rule in Delaware, but the cultural, social, and religious influence of these Swedish settlers has had a lasting effect upon the people in this area. Um, Old Swedes, the Holy Trinity Church built by the Swedes at Wilmington in 1698 was supplied by the Mother Church with missionaries until after the Revolution. It is one of the oldest Protestant churches in North America. Now, this is important as we get into these ladies' stories and their husbands because there was a divide in Delaware. Um, a lot of the colonies were not divided. They pretty much were on board. You know, we did have the pockets of loyalists, but as a whole colony, they were on board of going against the king in the revolution. Delaware was one of the few that was extremely divided. And I don't think we really have covered any of the other colonies that are quite as divided as this, right? And it's a small colony. Yeah, yeah. No, it, and a lot of them moved to Pennsylvania. They went to Philadelphia, at, you know, after, during and after the war. Right. So it's important that we had established that this was there was a big Protestant movement in Delaware, um, even until after the revolution, and this will play into when we talk about uh, later on. Oh, let's see. Following the seizure of the colony of New Sweden, the Dutch restored the name of Fort Kashmir and made it the principal settlement of the Zuit or South River as contrasted with the North or Hudson River. In a short time, the area within the fort was not large enough to accommodate all the settlers so that a town named New Amstel was laid out. The year 1681 marked the granting of the Providence of Pennsylvania to William Penn by King Charles II and the arrival of Penn's agents on the Delaware River. They soon reported to the proprietor that the new province would be landlocked if the colonies on either side of the Delaware River or Bay were hostile. 
As a result of Penn's petition to the Crown for the land on the west side of the Delaware River and bay below its province, the Duke of York in March 1682 conveyed by deeds and leases um, the, 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 the county, the land included in the counties of Newcastle, St. Jones, and Deal. And this was, a, this was important because um, William Penn was a really influential man by the way, but much more influential than um, the people that were on Delaware because they, he was aligned with England and they were the Dutchmen. And actually, when they said they were going to be landlocked, they knew they were afraid of this because the Dutch had already taken over the Swedes in Delaware. So, you know, there was always this, in the beginning of the colonies, it was, it was chaotic, right? I mean, it was constantly um, different countries trying to do the land grab. Oh, yeah. Okay, so let's see. Um, on October 27th of the same year, William Penn landed in America, first at Newcastle, and there took possession from the Duke of York's agents as proprietor of the lower counties. On this occasion, the colonists subscribed an oath of allegiance to the new proprietor, and the first General Assembly was held in the colony. The following year, the three lower counties were annexed to the province of Pennsylvania as territories with full privileges under Penn's famous frame of government. Also this year, the counties of St. Jones and Deal were renamed Kent and Sussex counties, respectively. After 1682, a long dispute ensued between William Penn and and Lord Baltimore of the province of Maryland as to the exact domain, dominion controlled by Penn on the lower Delaware. And you have to realize Maryland was Catholic. That was the only colony, the only colony that was all Catholic colony. Um, the rest of them were Protestant or, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Denominations of. Um, can, but, can and, and Protestant, yeah. Yeah. But Maryland was the only Catholic colony. Okay, so that gives you an idea of how amazing it is that we actually did come together, Deb, to sign this Declaration of Independence. I know. It really is. (laughs) If that was to happen today, it wouldn't have happened. No. If we were in that situation today, it would not have happened. Somebody would have been offended. And we would have had to get, get away from their safe space. <laughs> okay, so uh, da, 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 da. the dispute. Uh, no, no. Okay, uh, the dispute continued between the heirs of Baltimore and Penn until almost the end of the colonial period. In 1776, at the time of the Declaration of Independence, Delaware not only declared itself free from the British Empire, but also established a state government entirely separate from Pennsylvania. Delaware's boundaries were surveyed in 1763 and 68 by the noted English scientists Charles Mason and Jeremiah Dixon. All right. With the advent of the Revolutionary Revolution, nearly 4,000 men enlisted for service from the small states. The colonial wars had built up the militia system and supplied a number of capable officers who led the troops of Delaware and all the principal engagements from the Battle of Long Island to the Siege of Yorktown. The only revolutionary engagement fought on Delaware soil was the Battle of Cooch Bridge, Bridge near Newark on September 3rd, 1777. And if we get a chance and we have some time, I'm going to get into some of the battles. I think there was one other too. 
An important stimulus to the recovery of the state's economy after the war was the invention. Oh, that just keeps going on. Okay. Um, that's a brief history of Delaware. And uh, I'll get into more. I have something from Wikipedia. I, I, I usually don't use it, but I thought, thought it was uh, interesting because it does mention the um, men that are the husband, you know, the husbands of the wives we're going to do, and how Delaware was not really, it was, you know, split <laughs> mm. on what to do about the revolution. So, now, that being said, let me look at my little list because I have a list of the topics we're going to do. Um, oh, I did forget to do this, but I will do it after you. No, you know what? Let me just do it now. I want to read the delegates to the um, uh, the declaration from Delaware to the signers that signed the Declaration of Independence, and I forgot to get that up. Now, again, can you please explain to them that we're not, while well, I do this, that we're not going to have a lot on these ladies. Oh, yeah, well. Because you did the, the research. Yes, it's it's basically because either they didn't write anything uh, or else their journals, diaries, letters have been lost or destroyed. Uh, or in some cases, they couldn't write or read. You know, I mean, there were the... the uh, Education for women was not, uh, well, they got a a rudimentary education uh, for the most part. There were families that uh, fostered education for their daughters, um, but they weren't the the mainstream. Um, There was so much to do, you know, reading and writing was actually a luxury for your average, you know, mother and wife. And she had lots of manual labor that that needed to be done every day. So, you know, and, and those that did write um, their journals, luckily we do have some in existence, and you can find some of them over at archive.gov. But for the most part, uh, they've been lost or, you know, the women were just, too darn busy to write it all down, you know. And letters, of course, um, depending on the the uh, writer and the and or the recipient, uh, you know, many letters were destroyed um, because they were personal. And so we don't have and 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 then historians up until you know basically the 20th century were mainly men who did not find women. Uh, were necessarily um, important to be written about. So hopefully, you know, as as this has changed, more documents will come to light and more will be written about women. I mean, there's quite a few books out there now, uh, but they're all having the same problem, is is finding the original documents. Um, Some of the stories we tell just been handed down from generation to generation, you know, grandma telling the, the, you know, mom telling daughters and grandma's telling grandchildren and whatnot. So it's not easy to find, you know, I mean, there's so much, like her husband, Thomas McKean, because he was uh, um, so involved in 
politics and service. There's all sorts of stuff written on him, but his two wives, not so much, because they stayed at home, you know, and took care of all that. And apparently that was not important at one time. And we find it fascinating. Thank you very much. Well, we're surprised that we've we've found so many women and we've been doing this for so many years. That's why I say to all the time when I'm on other radio shows, when we do our show, Deb, I'm either crying or I am pissed off because we were robbed. Yeah, I know. I know. Okay. So the Delaware delegation that signed the Declaration of Independence is Thomas McKean, who married Mary Borden, and then later on Sarah Armitage, George Reed, who married Gertrude Roth, and Caesar Rodney, who never married. And it's going to be interesting because we are going to show the split between Delaware, even in the delegations that were sent there to sign the Declaration of Independence. Delaware almost didn't do it. But we need to start with her. And um, Deb, I need you to start it. Righty. Well, Mary Borden was born January 1st, 1743 and was the eldest daughter of Thomas Borden of Bordentown, New Jersey, a wealthy and public-spirited citizen who was later to become an active patriot during the War of the Revolution. Mary Borden, and this is from the womenhistoryblog.com, which is a fascinating site, and we often go here because this, the, the uh, author of this, this uh, blog has done a lot of research. Mary Borden and her younger sister Anne were said to be the handsomest girls in New Jersey. Anne afterward married Frances Hopkinson, who also became a signer of the Declaration of Independence. And Thomas, um, well, you'll see. Yeah, I have to read that because we're going to get down until, yeah. Thomas McCain, McKean was born March 19, 1734 the son of a well-to-do Irish-American parents in Chester County, Pennsylvania. Thomas rose through the influence of his mother's family. No, 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 no. I need you to keep going with her. You have to skip down. Remember we talked about this? First paragraph. Oh, skip down, too. Oh, I can't even understand my own notes. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Well, well, I'm not on the Internet right now. Um, I had to switch. Well, Arrow- yeah something different last night when we were discussing this than it does today. Yeah, um, let's see. Yeah. <laughs> All the way down to... Yes, okay. All right. When it's highlighted, Mary McKean. Yes, in 1763, so she was 20, Thomas McKean married Mary Borden, and they were 22, The Strand, in New Cancel, Delaware, and they became the parents of six children. There was Joseph, Robert, Elizabeth, Letitia, Mary, who unfortunately died in childhood, and Anne. The, let's see. She, they were married in 66. God, she had all those kids in 10 years. All right. Now. So now we skip down. Let me see. Yes. Okay. Mary McCain lived only 10 years after her marriage. Not long enough to enjoy much of the success that came to her husband. She died on March 12, 1773, at the age of 30, leaving two sons and four daughters, the youngest of whom was only two weeks old, and that would be Anne. And she was buried at Emmanuel Episcopal Church in Newcastle. 
okay, so now this brings up an aspect of family life and the women's life and colonial times that I wanted uh, you to highlight because I had said to my husband, and I can't, and he's, he was really keen in even thinking about this. I didn't even think about it when I read it. And I said, well, she's, leaving, she's dead and leaving all these little babies, and a two-week-year-old child that's going to need nourishment. And you had said that they used wet, um, wet nurses. Wet nurses. So now he's alone, all right, and he has to raise these kids, and he has to feed this child. So did you find out what happens when this kind of situation comes up? Yes. Now, there were many different um, avenues for women. Um, in Europe, especially France, wet nurses were used all the time, especially amongst the elite, because um, women of means were very busy socially and whatnot, and they and they didn't think it was ladylike to breastfeed your child, so they used wet nurses a lot. But most mothers in the North American colonies breastfed their infants. Again, we were different over here, which is good because it helped. Uh, but details of these breastfeeding practices are scarce, however, since many women could not read or write, had little free time, or felt too constrained by the intimacy of breastfeeding to write about it. Using a wet nurse really never became common practice among North American settlers as it had been among the European elite due to different lifestyles. The frontier character of colonial sediment, settlement and the paucity of wet nurses. Now, this is pre-revolution. This is, you know, like early 1700s, late 1600s. Mothers intuitively understood that breastfed babies had the best chance of surviving childhood. Imagine that. They also noted that breastfeeding helped to delay conception, providing a natural, even if not a completely reliable, means to space their children. Of course, not all babies could be breastfed by their mothers. Some women did not have enough milk or were too sickly or exhausted to feed their infants. A woman with swollen, impacted, or infected breasts found it too painful to have a baby suckle. And if a mother died during childbirth, which happened far more than it does today, a source of milk had to be found. A family might turn to a female neighbor, friend, or relative who was feeding her own baby, or they might hire a wet nurse. Families also advertised in newspapers stipulating the desired qualifications. Wet nurses were usually nursing their own or another baby or had just weaned their child. Many myths developed about nursing a baby. In cases where a baby needed a wet nurse, medical advisors warned parents that the type of women hired to feed a baby was critical. For instance, parents were urged to avoid a wet nurse with red hair, for this apparently implied a volatile temperament that could affect the women's, woman's milk. Leave it to the men, you know, because medical advisors were men in these days. The midwives, of course, had, you know, much more experience. And uh, and just, just so you know, in, in the South, during the 1800s, the slave women were, you know, were used to feed, you know, become wet nurses. This happened a lot less frequently than is supposed. And southern white mothers also breastfed the little slave babies if the mother died or was too sickly. So 
just thought that was an interesting point to bring up just on the, you know, little sideline there. Yeah, and we're so racist, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, guess what? Well, you just said that. I guess that means that the white folk did think that black lives mattered. Yeah, well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-uh. <laughs> Had to get that in. <laughs> yep. Um, let's see. It says, uh, well, that's that's later. That's later. Okay, now over here, this is interesting. Uh, this is um, from Neo, neonatology.org. Oh, the other one was from um, facts.org. This is from his, uh, neonatology. See, that's why I'm not a, a medical person because I can't say those words. Um, it says, changes in infant feeding practices necessitated, necessitated creation of new devices for delivery to the baby. And this is, this is during the, the uh, 1700s when they, they came up with this. Um, the term PAP uh, allegedly de- derived from the Scandinavian for the sound made when a baby opens his mouth for nourishment was probably introduced before its first recordings in literature in the mid-18th century. Recipes for PAP usually called for bread, flour, and water. A more nourishment mixture, panada, was a pap too many peas was a pap base with added butter and milk or cooked in broth as a milk substitute. Variations on the ingredients included Lisbon sugar, beer, wine, raw meat juices, and Castile soap. Oh dear, drugs were sometimes added to soothe the baby. The pap boat was designed to feed the mixture to babies and invalids, resembling a soft boat or sometimes a small bedpan. They were made of wood, silver, and pewter, bone, porcelain, or glass. They ranged from very plain for poor families or foundling homes to highly decorated pieces for wealthier clients. Although intended as a supplemental invalid or post-weaning food, this dry form of artificial feeding, often inadequate, became very popular, significantly contributing to the infant mortality of the period. And this also brings it up. See, if women breastfed, they found that in the colonies, Babies were usually born every two years on the average versus in the European countries, they were, I mean, these poor women gave birth every year because they were not breastfeeding, which kept them, you know, they they kept, they were able to get pregnant easier. So the, if they hired a wet nurse, to, which the elite did, and and the working women sometimes did too if they could you know find one or afford one or whatever. Um, they they were much more uh, frequent in their pregnancies, uh, whereas the the colonial women were not because they were breastfeeding. Well, and, you know it's it's interesting that you bring this up because this this to me fascinates this fascinates me because of the atheists. God knows exactly what he's doing. He did not want a woman that was already using her resources to take resources away from one child and give it to another because she would have to have, you know, her uterus would be, uh, everybody knows the 
the woman's body totally changes when they're pregnant, right? Yeah. So you're using more energy to give to nourish the baby inside of you, but you're not going to have that much energy to nourish the baby outside of you. And God did that. Right. Yeah. That's like a check and balance right there. Yes. Um, it is. And, and unfortunately for the poor women that were getting pregnant every year, it wore them out, which was why there was so much, you know, death and childbirth. The babies didn't thrive. Um, it, they found that more babies died uh, you know, than not. Um, it, it really, it really. You're right. It's very interesting. I, I didn't know quite a, a few of these things. So that the poor European women are having babies all the time, getting worn out, and uh, dying. And then the women over here are, yeah. They, there was, I mean, it, it used to be that when a woman found out that she was pregnant, she made out her will because childbirth death was much more prevalent than it is here. But in the colonies, it wasn't as much as in European countries because they were breastfeeding for a year at least. They stopped breastfeeding when they became pregnant because of what you just explained. They knew that they, you know, they they couldn't do that. They had to wean the baby. And um, and if they were sick, you know, you know, they're they're what? 38 years old, which is really 48 in our lives, 38, 40, they're having their eighth baby, and their little little bodies are tired, and so they had to come up with, you know, different methods of feeding the baby. So they came up with a pet boat, and uh, let's see, um, they used to use cow horns, to which teats were applied, too. In, in the 13th and 14th century, I thought that was really cool. Wouldn't you love to feed your baby with a cow horn? <laughs> anyway, getting back to um, the pat boats and other things, um, let's see. Uh, yeah, often in clay, in, in a, yeah, so unfortunately this didn't help the babies because they weren't really giving them what they needed. Implements for pe- feeding proliferated in the 18th century as new materials and methods of production became accessible. Shapes were clever and varied, and some pat boats were closed, others looked like animals, most often a duck. Feeding cups of such design are still manufactured in some countries today. How cool. Liquid feedings could be administered through sucking pots made of pewter. These were later replaced by ones made of porcelain. Some stood upright, others were submarine-shaped and would lie flat. In 1770, Dr. Hugh Smith invented the bubby pot, in some sources referred to as a bubbly pot. It was made of pewter and resembled a gravy pot or teapot. The bubbly pot came at a time when there was a strong move to make artificial feeding safer and reduce dependency on the wet nurse. The perforated spout was covered with cloth, which served as a nipple. Dr. Smith, in recommending his idea, stated... Through it, the milk is constantly strained, and the infant is obliged to labor for every drop he receives. It is amazing how much this device resembled the previously mentioned Cypriot feeding bottle of 1900 B.C., which Dr. Smith never saw. Although his pot underwent many variations and existed in porcelain, it never replaced as a sucking bottle. An American equivalent, the nursing can used by the Pennsylvania Germans, may have been copied from the bubby pot. 
This gained little popularity, and by the 19th century, the sucking bottle was almost the rule, and glass rapidly replaced the porcelain successors of pewter. They are now easier to clean, and their acceptance coincided with the understanding of bacteria contagion and improved sanitary conditions. <laughs> and there was also another thing I read, which I, I just think this horrified me when I read about it. Um, over in, in uh, England and, you know, the, the European countries, if you hired out as a wet nurse and sometimes you went to live with the, the baby's family and sometimes the baby went to live at your house, depending, and they didn't know about germs and whatnot, so cleanliness was not always next to godliness in these places, and the wet nurse had to send its own baby to a foundling home or an orphanage, an institution where it rarely thrived and many times died because it was getting the artificial feeding. I thought this was horrendous. These poor women, think about what straits you would have to be in knowing you're going to have to give up your child, and it probably is going to die, to feed somebody else's child for, you know, for a bit, a bit of money. Yeah, but see, that's what we always say. We, aren't, we, can't, we weren't serfs. These women were serfs. It didn't, it didn't matter to, you know, because if you had to pay somebody, you obviously had money or you had prestige. Right. So it, it, they were chattel. <laughs> that's what they were. Yes. And we were not. No, we were not. They breastfed their own babies, thank you, if they could. And if they couldn't, they fought. I don't know what, what Thomas McKean did. I mean, right. and he might have had servants. You know, I'm sure he had servants, you know, because they were well-to-do. He might have had a servant feed, you know, the nanny feed the the baby, you know, through the, the little pap boat or the the bubbly pot, whatever he used. Well, what I'm thinking is because it was so young at, at two, two weeks old, he had at least had to have somebody breastfeed it to, for at least a couple of months. Well, yeah, he could have he could have hired a wet nurse. I mean, there were the advertisements in the uh, in the papers at the time, so wet nurses were used, you know, or maybe somebody's servant was having a baby. You know, you don't know. I mean, I, it, it there was the, these different options, and it, it really was what they believed in, because the Puritans were, like, totally against wet nurses. You know, it was your job, you're the mother, you had better do it. I mean, that was just, that was the way it was. They would they, they thought wet nurses were, like, you know, something from the devil. So, well, not quite that strong, but they did not use wet nurses. So it depended on your, your beliefs, your culture, your, your the society at the time. Um and um, it's so, but wet nurses have been used since the beginning of babies. And, you know, if a mom can't do it, because, you know, sometimes moms just, for whatever reason, whether they have an infection or they, they just don't have the, the milk coming in, you know, there's all sorts of reasons, as you know, as a nurse, um, so they had to come up with different ways of making sure the baby survived, and it wasn't until the discovery of germs that they realized that 
there had better be clean milk, um, and they had better have clean utensils, and the wet nurses had better wash well. Right. You know. But okay. So later. All right. Well, I wanted to bring that up because I thought that was really important. It was. So now so yeah. she died, and then what? Go back to the essay. Okay. Now. And then. And then. We go to Sarah. Yep. Down to Sarah. Okay, now Sarah Armitage was his second wife. Um, and she was of Newcastle and born uh, December 19, 1747. And they married on September 2nd, 1774, which was less than a year because he had all these kids. <laughs> you know, and this is what they did. I mean, women, I mean, Mary Borden was married before, or was it Gertrude? I can't, no, because it didn't mention it, so it must have been Gertrude. Yeah, no, never mind. Sarah became the second wife, and um, they, when Thomas and Sarah moved to Philadelphia on the eve of the American Revolution in 1774, they established a home at 3rd and Pine Streets. Their first child, a son, died in infancy, and they subsequently had a son, Thomas Jr., born in 1779, and three daughters, Sarah, Sophia, Dorothea, and Maria Louisa. Well, there you go. Um, After their wedding, McKean moved from Delaware to Philadelphia. Uh, Let's see, he continued to hold him. Okay, I don't need you to read that. All right. Um, Now, do you want me to get into Thomas now? Are we done with the, the part of Sarah at this point? I'm just checking. Did you, okay, yeah, because you had said where they moved to, Yeah, right? they moved to Philadelphia. Okay. okay. Yeah, we're going to have to get into them. And, again, we we do apologize that we are doing the ladies and it's going to end up being more of the men, but it's out of our control. But And at, in reading the men, we're probably going to opine on what the women were going through at the time because yeah. when these men decided that they were going to do the the service of the country, they actually did the service of the country, not like now, not today. They were actual servants to the people. And that impacts their home life as well. Yes. And because he, he was very busy being a servant, and as you can see from when the children were born, uh, 77, 79, 83, and 85, those were really important years. He wasn't home. So here she had his children from his first marriage plus the five, let's see, no, one, four, four children of her own to take care of plus the businesses of the estate. And I'll tell you, you may have been well-to-do in these times, but you have to remember that women were up at 5.30, 5.30 in the morning because they had to they had to check, you know, they had to plan the meals, they had to pr- procure the, the, um, the food, get it to the cook, give the cook the instructions, they had to oversee the house, and if there were dinners or 
you know, events that were happening in the house, she had to direct the whole thing and make sure everything was where it was. If they had a dairy, she had to check on the dairy. If they, you know, they had a farming of any kind, uh, she had to check on the, the, you know, the overseer of the livestock and the fields. So, you know, you may have been wealthy, but you were busy. Oh, and, and if you had servants, you had to give them, um, you had to uh, procure, um, well, I know they procured clothes for the slaves, and I'm sure some families procured clothes for their servants. Um, and, and, I mean, you had a lot. It, it was it was a almost like a business. It wasn't like we think of home today, you know, it, it, our homes today. It, it, this was... These people were always entertaining some important person or, you know, being a part of society and and whatnot. So these women were busy, and then they had all their kids, and a lot of them did the homeschooling themselves, you know. So, whoo, I mean, just thinking about it. And, of course, if you lived on, on a plantation or, or a big farm, there was the annual pig killing in the fall. And that had to be done real quick because they did not have refrigerators or freezers. And we all know about pork going bad. So they, I mean, it was a big production and it was an annual event. And so, like I said, these women, even though they were well-to-do, they had their, their, uh, they had a lot of work to do. So, um, okay, so they moved to Delaware from Delaware to Philadelphia. In order to further his legal practice and also to facilitate his involvement in the independence movement as a member of the Continental Congress and otherwise, as McKean entered into Pennsylvania politics, he continued to hold political offices in Delaware. In fact, he played an important role in the writing of state constitutions for both Delaware and Pennsylvania. Thomas McKean was the only member who served in the Continental Congress from its beginning in 74 until the Treaty of Paris, which was signed on September 3, 1783. During the congressional session of 1776, he was a member of the Committee to State the Rights of the Colonies, as well as a member of the Secret Committee to Contract for the Importation of Arms. He was also selected to prepare and digest the draft of the Articles of Confederation to be entered into between the colonies. Wow. McCain led the effort in the General Assembly of Delaware to declare its separation from the British government, which it did on June 15, 1776. Then in August, he was elected to the special convention to draft a new state constitution. McCain, McCain, I keep saying McCain, I think it's McCain, made the long ride to Dover, Delaware, from Philadelphia in a single day. Went to a room in an inn, and that night, virtually by himself, drafted the document. It was adopted September 20, 1776. The Delaware Constitution of 1776 thus became the first state constitution to be produced after the Declaration of Independence. Um. Let's see. And this is interesting, too. Um, the Delaware delegates to the Continental Congress were Thomas McKean, George Reed, and Caesar Rodney. When 
Congress began debating a resolution of independence in June 1776. Caesar Rodney was absent. George Reed was against independence, which we'll get into later, which meant that the Delaware delegation was split between McKean and Reed and therefore could not vote in favor of independence. McKean requested that the absent Rodney ride all night from Dover to break the tie. After the vote for independence on July 2nd, McKean participated in the debate over the wording of the official Declaration of, of Independence, which was approved on July 1476. 1776. And then, this is, this is another, um, here we go, you know, history. Eh. You have to always go to original documents and whatnot, and sometimes even those are in disagreement. There is a serious question as to when McKean actually signed the declaration. He certainly did not do this in August, and although he claimed in old age that he attached his name sometime in 1776, it did not appear on the printed copy that was authenticated on January 17, 1777, and it's assumed that he signed after that date. Uh, let's see. Where does it say? Yeah, okay. But it says, um, the Delaware Constitution of 1776 provided for the first executives of the independent state of Delaware. They were known as presidents rather than governors, as they were to preside rather than govern. Now, there's an interesting... Uh, um, okay, but you missed... Did you say when he was born and all that from the beginning? Yeah. You did? Yes. Did did you talk about 18th century Delaware was politically divided? Not yet. That's not on this. No, you're, you're way down. I'm way down, yes. Yeah, that's all the way up in the top. Oh, okay. That's right after he married, Thomas McCreary married Mary Borden in, in bold letters. It's the oh, next paragraph. So we'll, uh, oh, yeah, I only got through half that paragraph, didn't I? Okay. All right, so starting at the beginning again, back and forth, back and forth, because they don't always put everything together. Thomas McKean, let's, we'll start, was born March 19, 1734. So when he was doing all that, he was in his 40s. Amazing. The son of well-to-do Irish-American parents in Chester County, Pennsylvania, Thomas rose through the influence of his mother's family. He was educated at the New London Academy and the school of Reverend Francis Allison in Philadelphia. At the age of 16, he studied law in the office of his cousin David Finney, a prominent attorney of Newcastle, which was done very, very uh, often. Um, they either went to university at 16 or they started. They, there was no teenage years. Their teenagers weren't, um, they weren't a thing then. After being admitted to the Delaware Bar in 1754, he also practiced law in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Ambitious and able, McKean soon became active in Delaware politics. He became Deputy Attorney General for Sussex County and then sat in the Delaware Assembly from 1762 to 1779, as I stated where I was reading. Um, he was you know, involved both in Philadelphia and in Delaware. And, was he and this is important that we bring this up, that this, what you're saying is ambitious, and also the next paragraph after we already talked about marrying Mary. Yeah. So this is important because he was in government when, way before revolution was even thought of. 
I mean, we were starting to think about it, but it wasn't coming through fruition yet. And he was already in the thick of the the governors who were appointed by the king. Um, and what you were saying earlier about what the Mary had to be doing because she had to entertain these people. Mm-hmm. Um, she had to arrange for, you know, his his uh, carriages. I mean, any, anything he had to do for state. The state didn't do it at that time, ladies and gentlemen. The people did it. If he had to go away, they had to make arrangements for it. The yep. government didn't do it. Nope. The individual people did it. Right, so it's a big, it's a big difference, and it's a big thing. Oh yeah. So while he was married, before he was married to her, and then she was going to be married into a political life. Yes. Yes. She knew that going in. He was very active, um, from the the late fifties on, um, but really starting in the early sixties, he was. Uh, he was the deputy attorney general for Sussex County and then sat in the Delaware Assembly from 1762 to 1779. That was all through the war. And he was the assembly speaker from 1772 to 73 while also serving as a judge and a customs collector. Good Lord. I know. <laughs> I mean, the only other guy that we've done like this was Roger Sermon. He was amazing, too. Oh, I know. These, you know, these, these... The folks out there do not realize how amazing we were and how amazing the men and women of this time were. Now, he had been, now, remember, he's a British subject. He's serving the king. He's serving the people. How hard and how much do he had to be pushed to change sides and decide to break away from England. He was enjoying a good life under England. He had prestige. You know, even though he was a servant, because we still didn't have that, you know, air about us. But, you know, not like the, the uh, aristocrats in England and Britain and, uh, and Europe. But he still, I mean, he had prestige, he had power. And he still voted and pushed his fellow delegates to sign the Declaration of Independence, Deb. Yeah, yeah. He would have lost everything. And how many kids does he have? And she had to make that decision. He, and believe it or not, they don't say it, but most of the husbands and wives back then, there was a few that were bad. There's always going to be a few that are bad. But husbands back then, they took their wives' counsel very seriously. Mm. Yes. They, you know, it, it was a loosening up of, of uh, society mores in, in the colonies because they were they – were, it, you know, and you you think about it, a lot of these people were second generation or third generation colonists. You know, their grandparents had come over in the late 1600s or the early 1700s. Um, you know, there there were few that were from England. You know, they came over here after being born in England, but these were Americans. These were colonists, American colonists, and and. Things were different. They had to be because life was different. You know, I mean, you didn't have everything structured and settled. Um, you know, the, the, from the early 1700s to the Revolutionary War, they were they were creating towns. They were creating governments. They were creating, you know, congresses. They were, cre- you know, and and they had to 
I mean, he he was in on the for, you know the Constitution of Delaware. So it, it's it, it was such a an incredible time. I mean, the, the birth of the nation. This is this is this is it. Because here comes the labor pains. This was you know basically the labor pains. Um, well, and you know it infuriates to hear all these kinds of cockroaches especially our illustrious king, say anything about these uh, these men and women. I know. They have, they, they don't have to worry about this. Well, they were all, you know, white private landowners who own slaves. That's all they care about. Right. But these people in deciding this will put their lives on the line. That that idiot up there has nothing to worry about his family or him dying. Nope. And they, a lot of them lost their, most of the signers of the the Declaration of Independence, the ones that um, they, and the signers of the Constitution, they, they lost their fortunes, a lot of them, and they died poor. You know, they, they make fun of these people without ever putting their, themselves in their shoes. Or reading about them. Right. Yeah. I mean, this man, why would he go against the king? He had a good life. Okay, well, we're getting to that. <laughs> That's next. Okay. Getting <laughs> of the labor thing. Good, good segue. Yeah. 18th century Delaware was politically divided into loose political factions known as the court party and the country party. The majority court party was generally Anglican, worked well with the colonial proprietary government, and was in favor of reconciliation with the British government. Okay, I need you to stop right there. Okay. Because I want to do the history of the um, Anglican, uh, Anglican Church in yeah. Delaware uh, so that we can get some perspective because it's important. Delaware was really split, and we're going to tell you why. Okay. Um, This is from dioceseofdelaware.net. We do not know the exact details of the beginning of the Anglican Church in Delaware or of the formation of the earliest parishes. In one sense, the church can date its beginning to the transfer of Delaware to the British in 1664 for the arrival of the English establishment of the present... The arrival of the English established the presence of an angelical laity. And remember, they were Swedes first, okay? And then the, well, they were Dutch first, and then they were Swedes, and then they were English, all right? So it went through a couple of different hands, a couple of different types of religions. And it's funny because I'm looking at a picture, and it says, the old Swedes Williamson Church built in 1699. <laughs> okay, so... Um, in 1677, the Reverend John Neo came to Delaware from Maryland. Now, this confused me because Maryland is Catholic, so I got confused a little bit from here. But he preached and conducted services in Newcastle County. By 1682, he had moved to Calvert County, Maryland. Until the Society for the Propagation of Gospel in Foreign Parts sent out first missionaries to Delaware, the attempts to establish the Anglican Church in Delaware did not have much support. That began to change in 1703 when the society went to send the Reverend George Roth to Newcastle. 
1708, St. Peter's in Lewes became the ninth church in Delaware established with the help of the society. By the time support from the SPG ended with American independence, six more churches had been started. Uh, let's see. The, lever, the, lever, oh, me, the revolution left the church in a weakened state. Gone with the support of the SPG and that had sustained the church for 80 years. Gone, too, were most of the Anglican clergy. Only the Reverend Vitamin Thor, rector of Christ Church, remained. Now, they were, because they were English, right? And this is what I wanted to bring out. They weren't, um, they weren't Swedes. They weren't Dutch. They, English, the England had taken them over, the Delaware uh, colony. So they were in the beginning, more towards English and English subjects and loyal to England, okay? Now, not only through that we were all English, uh, what do you call it? Why am, I, why am I forgetting? Subjects. Not only because they were English subjects, but because the church also had ties with England. So through their religion as well. So it was a big influence if you, if you were there at that time. Okay, now go back to what you were reading, and then I'm going to bring that up, bring up the second part of your paragraph. Okay. So this was what party? The court party. Okay, so this was the court party, and they were Anglican. Okay. Anglican. Anglican, sorry. <laughs> Not necessarily angels, no. The minority country party was largely Ulster Scott and quickly advocated independence from the British... Um, yeah, from the British. McKean was the epitome of the country party politician and was as much as anyone its leader. Okay, so now... Yeah, that's the country party. Right. And that's the country party. So the Scottish immigrants from Ulster, the first to leave a company sufficiently large to form settlements, entered the United States by two routes, by the Delaware River through Newcastle, Delaware, and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and at Charleston, South Carolina. And you and I were talking about this off air because it was, it's amazing to me. Now, these, they both came from Ulster, right? Mm-hmm. But the Scots immigrants that settled in Delaware and Philadelphia and Pennsylvania, they were patriots, whereas in South Carolina, they were loyalists. Yes. Yeah. Well, they were probably not Ulster Scots. <laughs> They might have been. What's the other? Uh, Ulster County and, and then, I mean, Scotland was also, that was split too, if you read Scottish history. So it was, um, you know, interesting. It, it really wasn't that, you know, um, that difference from, you know, when they came over and they had their, their same uh, same beliefs. So, oh dear. Okay, here we go. All right. So, here we get into the... the, the uh, okay, so this is where Delaware is split between these two parties. But when opposition arose to British policies... McKean represented Delaware at the Stamp Act Congress of 1765, where he stressed the rights of the colonies and helped organize Delaware's resistance to the Townsend duties. 
Now, we know that those two uh, acts of parliament were the real, well, they were the, 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 the lighting of the match, basically. This is what a lot of, you know, where a lot of people rose up and, and decided, now wait just one minute. This is not what we had, you know, is the taxation without representation. McKean proposed the voting procedure that the Continental Congress later adopted that each colony, regardless of size or population, had one vote. And then, uh, so, then we go down. Uh, it tells about him being the only member who served from 74 until 1783. And then they got to the Declaration of Independence that I had read before. And uh, accordingly, Thomas McKean was appointed as a, by the Assembly as Delaware's first president. And uh, that was after, that was in 1776. While acting in 1777 in the double capacity of President of Delaware and Chief Justice of Pennsylvania, he describes himself in a letter to his friend John Adams, dated November 8, 1779. I have had my full share of the anxieties, cares, and troubles of the present war. For some time I was obliged to act as President of Delaware State and as Chief Justice of this Pennsylvania. General Howe has just landed... August 77, at the head of Elk River when I undertook to discharge these two important trusts. The consequence was to be hunted like a fox by the enemy and envied by those who ought to have been my friends. I was compelled to remove my family five times in a few months and at last fixed them in a little log house on the banks of the Susquehanna more than a hundred miles from this place, but safety was not to be found there, for they were soon obliged to move again on account of the incursions of the Indians. Okay, now, see, we don't have anything about what she was going through. They're moving. And who's going to do most of the work besides, you know, the servants, I'm sure, they had? But all, how did you, well, how can I say this? How many servants did you have to get rid of because you knew you were moving so many times and you couldn't afford to take them with you? Right. Well, that too, and plus, you know, you didn't know where you were moving to. I imagine she had the one for the children, which, you know, there were seven, eight, or nine, and so she had she had maybe one or two to take care of the children, and she had her maid, her servant, and um, I'm sure he had his man with him if he could. Uh, but they moved into a little log house. Where are you going to put a bunch of servants? No, no. They could not take a bunch of servants and be on the move from here to there, from here to there, from here to there. So, you know, there there weren't, you couldn't take, I mean, God, there was already eight, nine kids. Plus her, plus whoever was taking care of the kids to help her out and her servant and maybe a cook. Maybe not. Uh, exactly. Exactly. So, so because of what he's involved in and the, the decisions that they made, um, here, here she is running all over the place, and it was a big deal. Leaving your house not knowing if it's going to be there when you get, you know, if, if you get back to it. Because you got to remember that seventy six and seventy seven were 
were um, heavy-duty years in the war. I mean, General Howe was, he was going in and, and just taking over places like Philadelphia. Clinton was in New York. You know, and if, if somebody is confused about how he could do so much as well, like be a judge and then be the president of the Delaware Assembly, um, they really didn't have that much involvement in our lives back then, ladies and gentlemen. That's how he could do stuff like that. Yeah. He didn't, he didn't have a full docket on his court because there was no freaking laws like we have now. We have so many laws. That's why we need so many lawyers and judges. No, we need to get rid of all these laws. That's why he could do so, so much, <laughs> because there was not that much to do. Government did not have involvement in your life. No, no. And that's what I think, you know, the next four Congresses should just spend their time on going through the laws and get rid of the unconscious. Well, even at the local level, Deb. Well, yeah, the local level, too. But, I mean, there are so many federal laws that are that override state sovereignty, you know, your state assembly should be doing the same thing. You know, that's what the next four years should be. Just read you know, and, and the laws. Well, and one of the things that my husband said, too, he said, you know, you don't want to send me up because he says he's just right of Genghis Khan. Um, but uh, the first thing he says, you want a department? Okay, I'm going to give you the department. The only department that I'm going to give you in my presidency is going to be a department where everybody sits down, goes through all of the laws and all of the executive orders, and anyone that is unconstitutional, they write it down, and I get rid of them. And That's the only department I want. Anything that was brought up by any of the other departments are all null and void because <laughs> they just have the. This is the department. I know what this is. Deb. This will be the department of no. Yes. Yes. Or erase. You know, red marker. Okay. The department of no. Yes. Everyone is given a red marker. Just <laughs> go through it. Man, we better get a bit. Of, that would take a big insinuator. I mean, just to get rid of the freaking Affordable Care Act. Just think of all the trees that died. You know. I, I know. What the the tree huggers don't care about them. We could recycle all that paper. Yep. Make a lot of boxes. Okay. And paper towels. A few days after Thomas McKean cast his vote for independence, he left the Continental Congress to serve as colonel in command of the 4th Battalion of the Pennsylvania Associators, a militia unit created by Benjamin Franklin in 1747. Yes, we had militia even before the Revolutionary War, people. They joined George Washington at Perth Amboy in New Jersey. Therefore, McKean was not available when most of the signers placed their signatures on the Declaration of Independence on August 2, 76. Since his signature did not appear on the printed copy that was authenticated on January 17, 77, it was assumed that he signed after that date, possibly as late as 1781. And this is where we get into the did he or didn't he. He says he did. Uh, Jefferson said he didn't. And, it, you know, we still don't know. In a conservative reaction against the advocates of American independence, the 1776-77 Delaware General Assembly did not reelect either McKean or Caesar, Caesar Rodney to the Continental Congress in October 1776. 
However, the British occupation following the Battle of Brandywine swung opinions enough that McKean was returned to Congress in October 1777. In July of 1777, McKean began his 22 years as Chief Justice of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, steering a moderate course and working for the successful 1787 ratification of the federal constitution. He also occupied a seat in the Delaware legislature until 1799. Um, let's see. Let's, uh, as a delegate to the Continental Congress, Thomas McKean was president when, present when the Articles of Confederation were ratified on March 1, 1781. By virtue of this ratification, the ever-fluid Continental Congress ceased to exist. On March 2nd, the United States and Congress assembled was placed at the head of each page of the official Journal of Congress. And you can find the journals of Congress over at archives.gov. It, they're wonderful to read. They really are. The, it, the, the, the crap that they have today recorded from Congress, I mean, it's just day and night. But you should go back and read some of the earliest journals of Congress. The United States of America, which was conceived on July 2, 1776, was finally born in 1781. Poor health caused Samuel Huntington to resign as president of the Continental Congress. Congress put off electing a new president until July 1781 in the hope that Huntington would recover. On July 10th, Thomas McKean was elected as the second president of the United States in Congress assembled and was the first to be elected under the Articles of Confederation. McKean served from July 10th, 81 until November 4th, 81. During that time, Lord Cornwallis's British army surrendered at Yorktown effectively ending the Revolutionary War. After okay, before you go on, it's, it's important for us to note that during the Revolution, we did have a, a government and a country. Yes. It was under the Articles of Confederation. And the only reason that the Second Continental Congress was born is because the Articles of Confederation did not work. Oh. did not have enough power. Right. And I'm tired of people saying that, oh, you know, the, the, we weren't a country until they, they either say we, we, they either say that our country was stolen from us when they got rid of the Articles of Confederation, or they say that we weren't a country until the Constitution. And that's not true. We, the reason that you have to have a, and we brought this up many times, the reason that you have to have a government, even if you're having a struggle, and this was a civil war, is because we were breaking away from Britain and we needed credibility with the rest of the world. So we had to form a government and we decided to have the Articles of the Confederation. And it, was, it wasn't good enough like Deb just said. But yes, we had presidents and we did have a government. And I'm tired of being, and again, Deb, this just goes that no one knows history. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to make that point. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's see. Hold on. Oops. Page. I have like 32 pages up. Okay. Let's see. After 1783, when his congressional 
service ended, McKean focused his political activities in Pennsylvania. In 1787, he was instrumental in that state's ratification of the U.S. Constitution. In the State Constitutional Convention of 1789-90, he just demonstrated mistrust of popular government. He, was, he argued for a strong executive and was at that time a Federalist. Okay, so that's what we're going to end with, with McKeon. Um, okay, so Thomas McKean died in Philadelphia on June 24, 1817, at the age of 83, survived by his second wife and four of the 11 children from his two marriages. He was buried in the First Presbyterian Church Cemetery there. And Sarah McKean died on May 6, 1820, at the age of 72. Yes. Okay, so now we need to go to, which I don't even think we're going to get to. I don't know if we're going to get to her. Where's the other one you gave me? There we are. Okay, this is also from the Woman's History blog. And I'm loading a page, and it is, well, my internet has been horrible. So um, I should have gotten this up before, because I don't know what the heck my husband's doing. Because <laughs> you know when you share bandwidth. Yes. Okay. So why is the Declaration of Independence signer George Reed? Gertrude Ross was born in 1733, the daughter of Reverend George Ross, who was more than half a century clergyman in Newcastle, Delaware. Gertrude was well-educated by her father beyond the common lot of most girls of her day, and even in educated families. It is said her person was beautiful, her manners elegant, and her piety, piety exemplary. She was a sister of George Ross, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, and half-sister of John Ross, an eminent lawyer in the Philadelphia Bar. On January 11, 1763, George Reed married Gertrude Ross Till, the widowed sister of future signer George Ross at Emanuel Church in Castle County, Delaware. There were four children born to the Reeds. Um, let's see, I don't care. Gertrude Reed seems to have been admirably fitted to the life companion of the public-spirited and patriotic young man she married. During the Revolution, she was almost constantly separated from her husband because of his service to his country. She suffered considerably and was often compelled to flee from the British at a moment's notice. Another one, right, Deb? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Then this is because they were after their husbands, ladies and gentlemen. They put everything on the line for this country. It just makes my heart ache. Yes. That's what we've become. Um, Let's see. But she was never dejected or complaining. On the contrary, she encouraged her husband in every possible way, not only by word, but by the cheerful manner with which she bore the hardships and burdens. The enemy was almost constantly a threat from the Delaware Bay and kept the little colony in a continuous state of alarm. The British Army at different periods occupied parts of the colony or went across it, making frequent changes of habitation necessary. And this is exactly what happened. We were talking about the loyalists. Um, in New Jersey, it's the same thing that happened in New Jersey and it happened to a loyalist and it's happening to a patriot. So, again, they're both suffering equally, right? Yeah. Gertrude was noted for her fondness for horticulture and enjoyed the profusion of flowers, especially tulips, which grew in the extensive garden of their old-fashioned mansion in Newcastle. 
There she spent most of her life, except for the short period when she was forced to take her family to Wilmington or Philadelphia during the Revolution. I could just see us. You know, everybody's packing up, right? And mm-hmm. like, you go outside and you just look at your beautiful garden and go, I don't even know if it's going to be here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when I was down in Florida before I moved to Montana, I knew we were going to leave for good. And the, my property was absolutely gorgeous. I mean, it was gorgeous. The natural flowers that grew there, we had a, a little pond, we had egrets coming over, and we lived by a preserve, so we had all this, this life. And when I would come home from work, I was a, a what do you call it, nurse, a, a shift nurse, night shift nurse, and I would walk Sasha every morning, our dog. And I'd just walk around the property knowing that I was only going to be there for like a, another couple of weeks, and I just tried to drink it all in. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's like when I get back from uh, Texas, you know, just standing out on my porch looking at my pond and then looking at the, the Blue Ridge Mountain. Oh, it's yes. You know, and I could just see her, like, is it going to be here when I get back? Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, you have no idea the hardship these women faced. And they did it with heads held high, not screaming for safe spaces and not wanting special treatment. Not being victims. We were taught that as Americans. We were taught how to be victims as Americans. Um, While in Congress, Mr. Reed wrote, freely to his wife about public affairs. Uh, like I said, they, they, thought they, they took the wise counsel at t- to heart. It was important to them. As well as their domestic concerns, and always in the same spirit of delightful com- comradeship. In 1774, he wrote her two days before the adjournment of Congress. Letter to Gertrude. My dear Gertrude, I am still uncertain as to the time of my return home. As I expected, the New England men declined doing any business on Sunday, and though we sat, sat until 4 o'clock this afternoon, I am well persuaded that our business could by no means be left until Wednesday evening, and even then very doubtful. But I have no prospect in being with you till Thursday evening. Five of the Virginia men are gone. The two remaining ones have power to act in their stead. The two objects before us and what we are going to go through tomorrow are an address to the king and one to the people of Canada. This last was recommitted this evening in order to be remodeled. Your brother George came to Congress this afternoon. All of your friends are well, no news, but the burning of a vessel and tea at Annapolis, the Peggy Stewart, which was the vessel, which I will take granted you will have heard before this, comes to hand. We are all well at my lodgings and send their love to you. Letter from 1776. My dear Gertrude, I have this morning wrote to Katie Thompson, sister, his sister, wife of General Thompson, proposing to, send, proposing to her to send her oldest son, George, to Philadelphia to the college where Ned Biddle will provide him with board and lodging and that she would send her second son to Wilmington where you will do the like for them, for him. I presume that you will approve of this last. The Providence, Providence shift left, ship, sorry, left town yesterday, being hurried off in consequence of intelligence that the Roenbuck, man of war, was ashore near the Cape. A ship fitted out by Congress and called the reprisal, I love that name, is ordered down also with several of the gondolas but a report prevailed last evening that the Roanbuck had got off. 
Little else has been talked of since the Sunday noon that the news came. I flatter myself that I shall see you on Saturday next. Last Saturday, the Congress sat, and I could not be absent. I saw Mr. Bedford last evening. He had a little gout in both feet, attended with a fever. Of this last, he most complained, but it has gone off. This day is their election for additional members of assembly. Great strife is expected. They'll, they, their fixed candidates are not known. One aide talked of Thomas Willing, Andrew Allen, Alexander Wilcox, and Samuel Howe against independence. The other, Daniel Rottendew, George Clymer, Mike Cahill, and the fourth I do not recollect. But it is thought that other persons will be put up. Love to our little ones and compliments to all acquaintances. So now we know he really cares about her. He is trying to get back to her. And he's telling her in these letters, I I really want to be with you, but the country needs me, right? Well, so many of them, um, you know, you read their letters, you know, between George Washington, John Adams, um, uh, you know, so many letters of the different, you know, it's getting late, my mind is full of holes, uh, but you look at the founding uh, fathers and you read their letters at archive.gov, um, and, and it is, it's this terrible missing of their, their wives and their family and their 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 homes, you know, these, these those were, you know, well, it started, started in, uh, really started in, in the 70s. But, you know, there was like at least 10 years where these people were away from home a good part of the time. They they went on, when they went on trips, they didn't go for, you know, the afternoon. They went for months. Kind of like being deployed in the military. And they really did miss their, miss their families. Okay. Okay, so I need you to go back up to George. George. At the top. Yes. George Reed, the son of John and Mary Howell Reed, was born in the town of Northeast Maryland on September 18, 1733. His father was a landholder of means, and his mother was the daughter of a Welsh planter. The family moved to Newcastle, Delaware, where George was young. He attended school in Chester, Pennsylvania, as well as the Reverend Francis Allison's Academy at New London, Pennsylvania. This must have been a very popular academy. At the age of 15, George began studying law with a Philadelphia attorney. At the age of 15, there were no teenagers. They went to work as soon as they were old enough. In 1753, he was admitted to the bar and began his own practice in Philadelphia. Under Delaware law, as the eldest of his father's six children, he was entitled to two-fifths of his father's estate. As soon as he came of age, he signed over all his rights in the estate to the younger children, believing that the amount spent on his education was all that he could ask from the estate. Oh. Okay. You know, and and as you scroll down, we're both going to scroll down, 
and go all the way to after her letters. Um, it, it is an attest of, of, of what the education system was back then. But you could go to law school at the age of 15. Are you freaking kidding me? These kids come out of college functionally illiterate. Yeah, I know. I know. I mean, that, that takes a lot. You're 15 years old and you can take the bar and you can study under a lawyer? Really? Well, there wasn't a bar and there weren't law schools. They went to university or you went and studied with a lawyer. Like apprenticeships. Yeah. Yeah, because there were no law schools yet. Um, the like Jefferson and uh, Adams, they 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 all went to university in their teen years. A lot of them, fifteen, sixteen, uh, and then they went into an apprenticeship. But the 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 education they received, they came out learning how to speak Greek, Latin, and any other language that they chose to learn. I mean, then he, Jefferson could read in, like, five different languages, I believe it was, five. Um, they were taught philosophy. They were taught religion. They were taught mathematics. They were taught science. They were taught um, the languages, uh, literature of the time. Um, it, that was a liberal arts education. And which is amazing when you think um, what you're learning. And I wouldn't send my kid to college today. I'm so glad she's 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 taking vet tech courses and business courses online while serving in the military. Well, and that's just it. There's no reason to send these kids anywhere. Nope. Not not in the not in the age we live in. Nope. Mm. You know, and and on top of that, what we were talking about, they did go to university, but it's like Madison only went there for like a year or two. He didn't like it. He yeah. was self-taught. Oh, that yeah. Was a he, lot of these people was, George Washington was self-taught. Yes, yes. Washington always felt bad because he hadn't gone to university. He felt less than because he hadn't. Um, but he was also self-taught, and he, Madison... You know, and even after they got out of the university, I saw one-third of Jefferson's library. I think I brought this up before. One-third they had at the Library of Congress, and they were going to – that's all that they had. Yeah, they only had one-third. It was just one-third. And I couldn't read two-thirds of those books because they're all in Italian, French, Greek, Latin – I mean, and he had read them all. And it was this huge room, and it was only a third of his library. It's it's incredible. If you do get a chance to go to D.C., do stop at the Library of Congress. And I'm not sure it's still there. This was a few years ago. Um, I don't know if they've moved it. But uh, they took down American folk art and put up Islam history room. I, was I know it's disgusting. Yes, but anyway. the only thing that we the only thing that we can do is right now is hope that private people take you know up this mantle and preserve our history because the government's not going to. Oh, they're they're uh, it's unconstitutional anyway. But I, I was just amazed at how PC the Library of Congress had become because I had been you, there before. 
you know, when I was younger. And then to see the changes they were making just to be PC, it just astounded me. But anyways, um, they still do have some incredible uh, exhibits. Okay, so now we get back to George Reed here. When the contest between Great Britain, this is where you wanted me to start, right? Yep. Okay. When the contest between Great Britain and the American colonies began in 1765, George still held office under the Crown, Attorney General for the three lower counties, the colonial name for Delaware, from 1763 until 1774. But that did not prevent him from entering actively into every measure to protect the rights of the people. See, this is a thing that people don't understand. They think, you know, the Loyalists were the enemy. Nah, the Loyalists were just people who believed in staying with the Crown. A lot of the Loyalists were upset with what George III was doing and Parliament was doing regarding the colonies. So you can't just go, well, they wanted, you know, they believed in, no, no, they, they were upset too. But they just, their their sticking point was becoming independent from Britain. From that time until his death, he was always in public service as a member of Congress, a judge of the Court of Appeals, a United States Senator, and the Chief Justice of Delaware. He protested actively against the Stamp Act and began a career in the colonial legislature, which lasted more than a decade. Um, let's see. George, uh, let's see, in 1754, George moved back to Newcastle and started a practice in his hometown. During this period, he lived in town but maintained Stoneham, a country house near the city, a two-and-a-half story with an L-shaped design. The house was built beginning circa 1730 with what was later the kitchen. The front portion of the house was added before 1769 when George reached bought the property. It's a very nice house, too. There's a picture of it here. Reed served in the Continental Congress from 74 to 77. Anticipating the Declaration of Independence, the General Assembly of the lower counties of Delaware declared its separation from the British government on June 15, 76. In the Congress, he moved in conservative patriot circles. He was willing to fight for colonial rights, but was wary of extremism. Sam Adams, (laughs) my hero. Reed voted against independence, the only signer of the declaration to do so, because there was a strong Tory sentiment in Delaware, the court party. He hoped that reconciliation with Great Britain was still possible. But as the debate reached a climax, his mind was changed, and he voted for independence on July 2nd, 1776, and signed the Declaration of Independence for Delaware. Once the Declaration of Independence was adopted, the General Assembly called for elections to a Delaware Constitutional Convention to draft a constitution for the new state. Reed was elected to this convention, became its president, and guided the passage of the Thomas McKean drafted document, which became the Delaware Constitution of 76. Reed was then elected to the first legislative council of the Delaware General Assembly, and was selected as the speaker in both the 76 to 77 and 77 to 78 sessions. During the fall of 1777, the British captured Delaware President, i.e. Governor, John McKinley, while Reed was in Philadelphia attending Congress. After narrowly escaping capture while returning home, 
Reed became president on October 20th, 77, serving until 1778. During these months, the British occupied nearby Philadelphia and were in control of the Delaware River. Oops. Um, let's see. I just lost my page here. Hold on. Hold on. I will found it. Okay. Uh, during these months, he re, okay. He oversaw the relocation of the state capital from Newcastle to Dover as a move to protect the capital of Delaware from the British Army. After Caesar Rodney was elected to replace him as president on March 31, 1778, Reed continued to serve in the Legislative Council through the 78-79 session. After a one-year rest because of ill health, he was elected to the House of Assembly for the 80 to 81 and 81 and 82 sessions. In 1782, he was appointed Judge of the Court of Appeals and Admiralty cases. He returned to the Legislative Council in 82 to 83 session and served through the 87 88 session. Uh, okay, so then uh, he went on and he kept going. And all this time, he's, I mean, he's away. You know, and and the war is happening. Philadelphia is taken by how, and they're moving the Congresses because of the the uh, the, um, the British occupy occupation. And here she is, you know, Gertrude. She's <laughs> taking care of things. And also moving by herself. Going to make it home. See, they, these wives were at home, and and they, you know, every letter that could come from their their husbands, and often weeks and months went by until somebody could get news to them about their 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 husbands. Well, yes, because the the British were constantly looking for correspondence. Oh, yeah. Between them, so you'd have to do it by other means, by spies, by you know people that were willing to put their life on the line to even get to a letter to you. Yes, yes, and if it, you know, it's like in the army. If any soldier was was going home and he was near your home, he would take letters from you and drop them off on his way to his home to your family, and hopefully, you know, he made it. Yeah, it's it's totally different now, and and I get what you say every once in a while when you get little kind of missed at the the kids that are spoiled about the communication with their loved ones that are in war because they have no clue what it was like. No, yeah, I mean even in in World War Two and the Korean War and Vietnam, and we didn't have the internet, and it was letters, and yeah, you know the letters didn't always come every week. Well, actually, you know, in that vein, I always, I I have got found and done a couple of uh, stories about people that are just finding veterans' letters now. Yeah. 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 You know, those touching scenes in the World War II movies where the, the wounded soldier hands over the letter to his wife, to his his battle buddy. That's for real. That's for real. I mean, how many wives got blood-stained letters, you know? Yep. <clears throat> so anyways, these people weren't necessarily in the military, 
but because of who they were and what they did, their their necks were in a noose. Yep, there was a price on their head and their families. But family. Well, because if you could get somebody's family, which was amazing to me that they never did. Well, they they, they were more gentlemanly than that. That that's the one thing about the British Army and the and the uh, the the Continental Army. Um, they were under these rules of warfare that dated way back. I mean, the, that women and children, they they could be taken prisoner, but they were treated much differently than your average soldier was treated from either army. They had the gentleman's rule. But if they caught your family, I mean, it, it, the family was was treasonous also, treasonous to the king. And that, you know, was a was a scary place to be. I mean, some women did end up in prison, and they weren't, you know, they were makeshift prisons, and they weren't very comfortable. But if you were, if your husband was an officer. Or like a you know a well-to-do person, you were you were basically imprisoned in a in a house, you know, a nice house, but you couldn't leave, <laughs> couldn't go home. So it was different those days. Um, they they did have different rules. The gentleman's rules. Gentleman. Okay, officer. so go ahead, continue. Okay, where was I? <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, okay, so there's that. Now, Reed was a... Del- oh, this goes into the 80s and the 90s, and he was very, very... Let's see. Uh, okay. Reed was a delegate to the Annapolis Convention held in 1786, a meeting at Annapolis, Maryland, of 12 delegates from five states, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Delaware, and Virginia, that called for a constitutional convention. The formal title of the meeting was a meeting of commissioners to remedy defects of the federal government. The defects that they were to remedy were those barriers that limited trade or commerce between the independent states under the Articles of Confederation. The commis- okay, I didn't know it was going to get into all that. Yeah. Um, okay, go all the way down because it has when he died or you want me to do it. Um, let's see. Oh, my goodness. He was very, very busy. Very busy. Okay, he died on September 21st, 1798 at Newcastle, Delaware, just three days. No, no, no. Go go back up. Go back up to given the significant contributions. Oh, okay. Given the significant contributions to his country, his good counsel and loyalty to friends, and his principled evaluation and judicious deliberation of the issues of the day, it is quite fitting that George Reed was among the crowd gathered on the balcony of Federal Hall in Philadelphia to witness and celebrate George Washington's inauguration as the first president of the United States of America. Reed was a distinguished member of the esteemed fraternity we now refer to as our founding fathers. He resigned as senator on September 18, 1793, to accept an appointment as Chief Justice of the Delaware Supreme Court and served in that capacity to his, until his death, which was September 21, 1798. 
just three days after his 65th birthday. He was buried there in the Emanuel Episcopal Church Cemetery. Um, Gertrude Ross Till Reed, yeah, she was married to Thomas Thomas Reed, I mean Thomas Till, before she she married um, George. She died September 2nd, 1802, at home in Newcastle, Delaware. So, I mean, these are amazing men and women. It's well, we call them the founding mothers. These are all founding mothers, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, and and there are books out now. If you go uh, looking for, um, just put in founding founding women, founding mothers, founding daughters, um, you will find books that have been written in the last 20 years on a lot of the women that we have been discussing. It's really wonderful that they're they're coming out with with the stories of these these women that were and young girls that were um, very active. Uh, they participated in courageous ways during the war. Um, and and even over here, womenhistoryblog.com, they have she has a category, the daughters of liberty. Um, so you can read about them too. Um, and then women's role in the American Revolution. Um, she has a lot of wonderful uh, essays on on the, the women of the Revolution. So, which is why we keep coming back to her because. And plus, she also has other types of of categories um, on women. And it's really a neat, really a neat. Uh, um, blog site. So, okay. There's Gertrude. She was she was an amazing person because she let's see she was born in '33, so she was in her 40s when when all this started. And um, you know. You no, know, you notice the last couple of ladies we've done have been uh, have been older. Yeah, they've been in their well. The men, the men. See, the men had had started, you know, in the fifties and the sixties, and it, in the sixties with the Stamp Act and the Townsend duties and and the other acts that uh, Parliament thought was wonderful to impose on the colonists. Um, they were they were right there. And they had, you know, they had um, experience behind them. They were already in politics, so they could step in. It's really, I mean, when you think about the people that were situated in in our colonies at this time, in the, you know, the, the colonies, it's amazing. The the, I mean, if you put them all together in one room, can you imagine? the wisdom and the knowledge. I mean, you couldn't hold it in the room. It's incredible. These people were... And they didn't all get along. Um, they they disagreed vehemently uh, on many object, uh, many subjects. Um, you have to remember the, the colonies were like, when they were sovereign, they were different. They were like little countries, um, you know, each unto his own. And and the fact that we had 13 of them and they all came together eventually 
with much bickering and much debate and 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 harsh words and oh my well, goodness. Well, I want to read a little bit about Caesar Rodney, who was the the other uh, signer of declaration from Delaware, and yeah. he did not marry, but his ancestry is going to put a little bit of light of what we've been talking about. So. Uh-huh. Caesar Rodney was born near Dover, Delaware on October 7, 1728, on the family plantation known as Byfield, the eldest child of Caesar and Elizabeth Crawford Rodney. Byfield was originally settled in the early 1680s by Caesar Rodney's maternal grandfather, Daniel Jones. After Jones' death, Byfield became the family seat for three generations of the Rodney family. Caesar Rodney spent his formative years here and acquired ownership of the property after his mother's death in 1763. Caesar Rodney's impressive English ancestry has been documented back to 1095. In his family tree is Sir Henry Seymour, whose sister, Jane Seymour, became the third wife of Henry VIII. Yes. And this person signed the Declaration of Independence. I know. I mean, he had aristocrats in, in, his, in his lineage. Mm-hmm. And he went against that. Yes. Caesar was the eldest of eight children. At 17, when his father died, he assumed the responsibility of caring for his mother and siblings and managing the Byfield Plantation. Caesar was educated in, at the Latin School in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, she... Caesar never married and left no children. We know he professed his love and affection for several Delaware ladies at various times, but was never a successful suitor. It is likely that he accepted these disappointments and put his energy into becoming the single most valuable and productive Delaware citizen. At age 27, he was appointed sheriff of Kent County, a series of local and significant offices followed with impressive speed indicating the rigorous public life to come. No Delawarean since has come close to holding the sheer number of his many significant offices. You notice that all of these gentlemen held multiple offices in Delaware. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the few colonies that, ha- that we've documented this. Mm-hmm. I mean, they just didn't do one thing. They did a whole bunch. And why would he want to do this anyway? He's a wealthy person, right? Yeah. He's got significant English background. I mean, one of his ancestors was married to Henry VIII, right? Why would he want to do this? Why would he want to be a servant? Yeah. Well, that's the way the American colonists were. They weren't... Right. Exactly. The, the, uh... And plus, he, he introduced a bill to prohibit the importation of slaves into Delaware in 1776, even though at this time, like so many... Um, plantation owners, he owned 200 slaves, it is clear that he was pondering questions of the colonies and mankind's liberty and freedom. And this is the point that they're missing, because they don't read history in context. You figure, at that time, the abolitionist movement was, was gaining, you know, the great the Enlightenment and the, the abolish, abolitionist movement were gaining strength and it caused these men of educated means you know they to to think about i mean here they're they're thinking about independence from britain and they're questioning 
a lot of what Britain's doing. And they're also, you know, they're educated in philosophy and government. And they're looking at their lives going, you know, this might not be right. Well, yeah, and it says right here, the apex of Caesar Rodney's service to his state occurred in the spring of 1776. He, along with Thomas McKean and George Reed, were the three Delaware delegates to the Continental Congress. The explosive issue of actual independence was the question of the hour. On June 7th, Richard Henry Lee of Virginia introduced a brief thunderbolt of a resolution. Resolved that these United Colonies are, and of right, ought to be free and independent states. The awesome consequence of this to be the country as a whole and the lives and fortunes of the delegates can hardly be overstated. The entire Congress was potentially placing their necks in a British noose and the future of the colonies at mortal risk. Yeah, it was that speech by Richard Henry Lee of Virginia that turned um, George Reed to, to sign the Declaration of Independence, even though he voted against it. And... Again, the entire Congress was potentially placing their necks in a British noose and the future of the colonies at mortal risk. Yep. What do these cockroaches that represent us have, have to lose? Nothing. Right. We're losing it. We're losing everything. They're losing nothing. They're not even threatened. They get upset when, we, when we're at a town hall meeting and we question them. Yes. How dare you? He was also a soldier, an officer during the war, and um, he could ride. He was a true horseman. Um, there was another little thing about him at Horse Junkies United. That caught my eye because of my love of horses. And he did, uh, on the 4th of July... The 80-mile ride that changed America, and that's when he, when George Reed sent for him, and he went from Dover, Delaware, to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, a distance of about 80 miles, which in those days was a solid two-day journey, because he was the deciding vote, just one, that sealed the fate of the Continental Congress and made official the break for independence from England. You know, and it's amazing. That animal he rode, is uh, that's an amazing animal. Yes. Yes. Um, this was a huge step, and it was no wonder that the Constitution had these words. We mutually pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. The delegates gathered there knew that voting for independence meant most would be signing their own death warrants. The courage of these men was simply breathtaking when you study the times and the danger that they lived in it makes Rodney's ride even more courageous. And if you want to read it, really, because you should, because it, it, it describes uh, so much about him and everything and, and about his ride and about the Declaration of Independence. Um, and, the, and Delaware has him on, on, the, uh, on a coin, the Delaware coin. He's on it, on the horse. Um, and, of course, this just tickled my heart because, as I said, I, I really. But it's over at Horse Junkies United, and it's uh, the 4th of July, the 80-mile ride that changed America, and you can find it over there. 
So it ends with Caesar Rodney died at age 56 at his home near Dover on June 26, 1784. He died young. Yes. And was buried at Poplar Grove, his home on the Byfield Plantation. In the years after his heroic vote for independence, he truly became the first citizen of Delaware with his tireless efforts on the state's behalf. Indeed, this selfless service likely hastened his death. And with that, we are going to end the show. We have about five minutes. And as always, I am going to pump, pimp, pump, whatever you want to say, the Patriots Pub. Please, ladies and gentlemen, that's why Deb and I are taking our time out of our lives to do this show. We need to know our history. We need to know where we came from. We need to know these people who risked so that we could be free and speak out against the damn government that we created. And yes, this government that's up there is our fault. And I know I'm getting emotional, but it is getting really bad out there. And I do not want another bloody revolution. I do not want another civil war. So go to Patriots Pub, PatriotsPub.us, PatriotsPub.us, download it for free. Listen to it on your iPad, listen to it in a car. It is a three-year history lesson about the Continental uh, Continental Convention of 1787 in the founders' own words by three self-taught historian scholars. Vitally important. PatriotsPub.us, PatriotsPub.us. And with that, that always takes us out. Well, with what has happened this weekend, first of all, I want to send out Oh, my heartfelt gratitude for the first responders that rushed towards the explosions that could have been um, with the the bombs that were were uh, planted by the jihadist of Islam, and knowing that our kids in uniform are still over in those horrendous countries where. Unfortunately, this administration and the secretary of secretaries of state have been doing such a poor job. Well, maybe they're being successful in their mind, but it's certainly creating a lot of danger for our kids in uniform. So give a prayer to them. Give a prayer to the first responders and that, that magnificent off-duty officer in, in uh, Minnesota who stopped a, a massacre by knife. Um, but really, these our first responders, the policemen that are under you know under attack right now. I the best you know the best thing that we can do is is go to our local police station or send a note, bring muffins, bring cookies, say thank you, and let them know that you got their back because, like I said, they're under attack. Go to your local recruiting office. Do the same thing. Let them know you've got their back. Go to your VA hospital. Visit the old guys. Visit the the new vets. Tell them, hey, we got your back. Let them know that America still cares about our kids in uniform, whatever color they wear. They rush into the danger so we don't have to, and they keep us safe. So say a prayer for all of them and their families because they never know if they're coming home. And and we miss you so, Loki. And uh, we keep on keeping on for you, darling. With that, 
We shall say good night. Thanks for stopping by. We appreciate it.
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.